Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, July the 13th, 2012. Watch out for black cats and ladders and stuff like that, I guess, today. Bad luck uh, is supposed to come on the 13th of Friday. Of course, I don't believe that stuff, but if you do, be careful of black cats. Who knows? Anyway, today is Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it's time for your calls to the Think Line. This is where you call in probably a week, two in advance, and you say something to me on the phone. You call 866-65-THINK. That's 866-65-THINK. You call that number, you leave me your question, and I put you on the air in a week or two or three. If you've called more than three weeks ago and you don't hear yourself by today, you may want to recall on your question. It got screened out. It may have nothing to do with your call. There may have been no problems with your call at all. It might have just been a call volume thing. I get far more calls than I can put on the air, but I do try to get things, uh, you know, keep them, keep them varied and stuff like that. So, uh, call back in and sooner or later you probably will hear yourself on the air. Again, the number 866-65-THINK. Before I get into your calls, though, today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Save Castle Royal, the original Survivor Podcast, Survivor Podcast, Survival Podcast sponsor. These are the first guys that stepped up and said, we officially want to sponsor the show. Uh, they've been a sponsor now for, well, about over three years, maybe three and a half years. And, uh, they continue to support the audience. They also have a really great discount membership program. It's $49, and it provides you discounts on everything they sell for, well, the rest of your life. If you want it free, all you have to do is become a member support brigade member at the Survival Podcast. And guess what? You get their discount membership for free, which effectively means your first year of MSB costs a dollar. So not only are they a great sponsor because they sponsor the show, but they're a great sponsor because they support the member support brigade with one of the best benefits available in it. Next up today is Backyard Food Production. Marjorie Wildcraft is down there somewhere south of Austin. She keeps her exact location discreet. Uh, has set up her backyard to be a food production machine and put out a DVD called Growing Your Groceries, available at BackyardFoodProduction.com that will help you do the same thing. And whether you're on a tenth of an acre in the, in the city or ten acres in the country, you can use the techniques that she has in that DVD to largely produce a huge amount of your own food. Check them out today at BackyardFoodProduction.com. Best way to visit Safe Castle Royal or Backyard Food Production is to go to the survivalpodcast.com first. Click on their banners on the right-hand margin. Then you know you're dealing with an actual sponsor, someone that carries my personal endorsement uh, versus a brand pirate, and some of them are out there. I also want to remind you, remind you about TSP Copper. Again, tspcopper.com. Really cool medallions there. Check them out, tspcopper.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you support the show at about 20 cents an episode. For more information, click on Members or the Member Support Brigade, members support brigade Banner uh, at the survivalpodcast.com. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, and First Response. Responders, email me before you join with service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you did or who you are and what you're doing. And I will send you a special discount uh, code to thank you for your service before you join. That wraps up the housekeeping. I do have a couple more things, though, today uh, to cover with you. First, I want to start off with 
people that get offended sometimes listening to the show. Uh, there's been a little bit of that lately, but the people that got offended, you should not be offended if you're listening today and you hear this. It's not really about you. From time to time, I hear from people that said, Jack, you said that people that do this are dumb and that's offensive to people. Or you said that this is a really dumb idea and I, you know, some people may have done that because they didn't know any better or whatever. And here's the thing. Unless I say, you, Joe Blow, are a dumbass, you shouldn't take anything that I say personal. All right, and if you've done something that I think is stupid in the past, you have a couple different things you can do with this. One, you can go, after hearing Jack's view and considering my view, I still think I'm right and I'm still going to do things my way. And I'm okay with that. You can look at it and go, after hearing this, I understand that it was dumb to behave that way in the past, but I didn't do it out of stupidity, which means I'm just too dumb to see the light. I did it out of ignorance. I didn't know the reality, and now I'm going to do it differently. And let me tell you something about that. When somebody hits you between the eyes with a two-by-four like that, and it's not like I'm up here on the top row coming down on people's heads you know, 24-7, 365. These are little things that get thrown out here and there. When you get hit with that, and it digs into you, and it bothers you, it may bother you, it may piss you off at me, but let me tell you what's going to happen. You'll never forget it. And when you're faced with the situation again, you'll either act fully informed and choose to do what you've always done because you believe you're right, and that's completely fair and completely normal, and that is, you know, my respect for you that I might be wrong. I don't believe I'm wrong, or I wouldn't come out so forcefully and tell you that it's a mistake. But if you want to do it, you do it fully informed. You've heard both sides of the issue. Or, after hearing both sides of the issue, you realize you need to behave differently, and someday it might save your ass. All right, And that's a basic teaching technique. But just to be completely clear, whenever you're like, I didn't like when he said that or he said shit and he shouldn't say shit, I have a whole page. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com and hover on about, you'll see the first drop down is disclaimers and policies. And just to make sure anybody that's ever been offended can know what my stance on you being offended by something I say is, I am going to read section 3. Adult Language and Content Warnings, Subset 5, which is the last one in it. We believe in freedom here. If you choose to listen to our show, you do so as a free human being on planet Earth. And therefore, we are not responsible for any, quote, mental anguish, mental trauma, feeling of be being offended, end quote, or any other emotional problems you may get from doing so. This is my stance on you being offended. If you want to know my stance on comments, forms, free speech, adult language and content, my distribution policy, or my legal disclaimers, you may go again to about and then go to disclaimers and policies. If I've offended you, that is life. I'm going to offend people. I talk about controversial things. If you listen to me long enough, I'm going to make one promise to you. I will piss you off sooner or later. You can agree with me 99% of the time, and the 1% you can agree to disagree and think this will never happen. I'm promising you. I will upset you. I will piss you off. When you're pissed off, go to uh, Section 3, Adult Language and Content Warning, Subset 5, and see that it's okay for you to be pissed off, but I'm not going to fix it for you. All right, And that's just the way that it is. Next up, on a happier note, I am going to be at the Self-Reliance Expo July 27th and 28th. You can come out, shake my hand, and tell me you like the show. Or you can come out and tell me that I offended you. And either way, I'll be happy to see you. In fact, I'm going to be so happy to see you that I've worked with the people at Self-Reliance Expo to get a special opportunity for TSP audience members. I put this out on the show yesterday, but here's how it works. 
On uh, Saturday, I will be giving the keynote address at 9.30, uh, which is only uh, 30 minutes after the doors open. The doors open for everybody uh, at 9 o'clock on, um, on that day, on Saturday the uh, 28th. But if you are a TSP audience member, you'll be able to show up and get in early, and you'll be able to get in at 8.30, 30 minutes before everybody else. And I will be hanging out with a special selected group of people that you'll get to meet as well. These people include folks like Marjorie Wildcraft. She's not confirmed yet, but she'll probably be there. Uh, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy will be there. Southern Prepper One likely will be there. Jackie Clay, a longtime author for Backwoods Home Magazine, a really awesome lady, will be there. And that's, that little meet and greet setup is just for you. You can find full details at the survivalpodcast.com. There's a page on Facebook to confirm that she'll be coming. I don't think you have to confirm it on Facebook, uh, but this is going to be just for you guys. And uh, we'll make sure that if there's anything special you need to do to get in the door, other than say I'm here for the TSP meetup, which I think is all you're going to have to do. If anything else needs to be done, I'll make sure you find out. So come on out and get a chance to hang out with me and uh, these other folks before anybody else can even get in the door. So even though I might offend you sometimes, guys, this is the kind of thing that I try to do. Uh, you know, I, I really am a humble guy in spite of what I just said before this, and it really, it, it really is a big deal to me that anybody would bother to drive across the street, let alone across a town or sometimes a state to come meet me. And I'd love to have you guys meet me, and not just me, but meet each other and have a little bit of time uh, to be treated like the special group of people that you are. So hopefully the few people that I've ruffled some feathers on this week can see that that's what I'm really all about. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call of the day. Jack, my name is Michael. I live in Arkansas. I just came across a perfect example for two different things. One, why you keep a bug out bag with you. And two, what would happen when a real calamity hits our nation, and particularly Washington, D.C. My wife was in Washington on business and had driven up there. She woke up yesterday morning expecting to leave and found no lights, no uh, traffic signals, no electricity, no cell phone service, no way to contact anyone. It took her over four hours to drive 60 miles to get out of Washington, D.C. Now, she didn't have to use her bug out bag or her equipment, but it was there in case she needed it. She had to go from uh, traffic stops or exits on the highway to the next exit to the next exit in order to find gas and started with a half tank just to make sure that she could find gas. Uh, a real issue, and just think of what will happen when something hits uh, that particular area. Thanks for your time. Thanks for what you do. I appreciate it. Well, good call, and I'm glad to hear that she got out and that you know she didn't even need to really rely on anything, but the fact that it was there is a good, a good thing. And it, it brings up a few things I'd like to talk about today. I always hear from people that say, I really want to be better prepared, but I can't afford to be right now. And I always say some of the most important things we can do to be prepared are either very inexpensive or free. And one is a documentation package. And that documentation package, I've done entire episodes on, but it has all the contact information for everybody you need to contact, account numbers, things like that. Uh, you can protect your account numbers with simple one-off number encryption or two-off number encryption and some tricks. Like, I'll give you one here again. I've talked about this before. Let's say you wanted to put your bank account number in a documentation package. And you did not want uh, a person who found it to be able to do anything with it. Well, what you, if you take most bank account numbers 
and you put a one in front of them in a dash, they'll end up looking like a phone number. You can divide three digits and four digits like that. You could add, and then what you do is you say, I'm going to have a positive two encryption on all my numbers. So if your, if your first digits of your bank account number were, uh, 609, they would become 710. And then that way you can decrypt your own stuff on the fly without having to think too hard about it. But nobody would ever figure that out. Others, you know, uh, as far as your random thieves or something like that, they would try to use it as it was. Or you know, if you do what I said about putting the the one in front of it, you, can make it look like a phone number. And I think it's Bank of America or Bank. You know, I don't like them, but if you want to use them, whatever. You know, uh, whatever bank it is, I use a bank called Frost Bank out of Texas, a small bank, and you put that there, and it looks like it's their phone number. All right, so that would be one way to do that because people get concerned about that. But the documentation package is huge. The reason I bring it up is the documentation package should also include how the heck do I get out of Dodge? What are three routes uh, out to three different locations out of this place so I can get the hell out of here? And one of the holes I think even in my own prepping has been that when I leave, I take that with me. I have that information with me. But... I usually don't create these evacuation routes for the place that I'm going. And I think that's a huge thing that we all need to be doing from now on when we travel, just to be able to get out of there. A lot of times, you know, people are worried about the big scenario. The whole country's down, and that's what this caller's talking about. If you can see what happened there, imagine if it's everywhere. Um, but the more likely scenario is what happened. This just, just happened. That means it can happen, and it will likely happen again, and people get stuck in these locations. So having evacuation wraps with Bing Maps or Google Maps or whatever is a, is a good idea. By the way, when it comes to aerial photography and looking down at pieces of property and stuff like that, I finally found that Bing, B-I-N-G.com, Microsoft Search Engine, their Maps tool is far superior to Google Maps. The resolution is much better, especially in more rural areas. So check, check that out today if you get a chance. But making sure you have those evacuation routes as part of your bug out bag is a good idea. Another thing I think that's very cheap and we should probably all start doing is if you travel to Washington, D.C., Buy a map in advance of Washington and the greater metro area. I don't care if your GPS is what you usually rely on, and you can use Google Maps on your iPad or your iPod or whatever, right? Your iTouch, your iPhone, and I use that stuff all the time. But a, a printed out, not a printed out map, but a proper fold map, you know, get one. They're only a few bucks. Get one before you go. Um, a state atlas is another good thing, you know, all 50 states in it, but then having the better view of the area that you're going to be in. And every time you pick one up, just make it part of what you save, and you'll find that a lot of the places that you go, you'll end up going back and you'll have them for that. I think those are two huge things that I like to suggest people add when they travel. Another thing, whether you're driving like apparently the caller's wife did or if you're you know, driving your own vehicle or if you're renting a vehicle there, when you're out of town, especially when you're out of town and away from home, keep the fuel tank topped off. Every time you're below three-quarters of the tank or even close to it, if you're driving by a gas station, pull in and fill up. Uh, it'll help you returning your cars full because there's always, you know how they do it. There's never a freaking gas station near the rental car return place at the airport. And they want you to pay for a tank even though you're only going to use a quarter of a tank. And they tell you you're saving money, that old gambit. Um, so that'll help you with that. Life is better if times are tough or even if they aren't. But that way, if something like this happens, you've got close to the full range of the vehicle to find more fuel getting out of Dodge. And it may be something that you have to do. Case in point, uh, the gas was not an issue. 
but I did drive a rental car home at a time when I never intended to drive a rental car home. I flew uh, out of Philadelphia Airport to Pittsburgh Airport on 9-11-2001. I landed. I got off the plane. I didn't get on a plane again for another two weeks because, well, for about most of that time, no one was getting on a plane. So I took my rental car, and I drove it home, and I ended up making arrangements with the rental car company to return it to Philadelphia so I could pick up my truck and drive it to my house the next day. So there are times, again, if it has happened, it likely will happen again. This is a perfect example of just that. I traveled out of town. I had no intention of leaving Pittsburgh with that car, but, of course, I did because it became my only option to get out of Dodge. So keep the car full. Keep your documentation packages updated. Customize your documentation packages when you travel and get a hard copy, good quality map of the area and everybody out there and all your vehicles, please have a 50-state atlas. You never know where you're going to be. That's cheap insurance. Those are low-cost to no-cost methods of being prepared, uh, and it adds to what the caller had. Thank you for that call, sir. Let's take another one. Jack, this is Ronnie in Iowa. I just had to call in and tell you, that you are very correct about the rewards you receive by being a TFC member. I discovered that even more can come from being a TFC member on June 30th when I attended the grand opening of the cafe at Heirloom Solutions Market in Thompson, Illinois. Heirloom Solutions is a superior name for the businesses. They sell only heirloom seeds and have multiple solutions for the home, including solar panels, solar generators, and other such items combined with a vast selection of organic foods, patriotic books, gardening books, DVDs, TVs, and anything and everything to do herbal, as well as a very well-educated staff. When I got their email about the grand opening on the cafe, I just about flipped because one of their guest speakers was Chef Pete Snow, and I sure wasn't going to miss the chance to see him live in an action. He did a presentation at 11 and 3, cooking with flat-fed beef and fresh things from the garden, and of course, his fabulous slices. It was a very hot day with the heat index of 107, so I think a lot of folks stayed home. Therefore, it was a small group, but that gave me the opportunity to say hello and tell Chef Keith that I am a TFC member. He really lit up when I said that, and he said, oh, man, Jack is just awesome, isn't he? He and I are doing another show soon. Remind the folks at TFC that we need caller questions so Jack and I can put together a really good show for everyone. After his presentation, Chef Keith and his lovely wife, Sonia, visited with me for a while. Having a personal one-on-one conversation with them was truly an extra TFP member benefit. Due to the connection through you, there is an immediate, almost family-like bond, and you know the level of communication will be very rewarding, which it truly was. I also have to mention that Chef Keith and his wife are very precious, down-to-earth people, and I don't think there is a pompous or pious bone in their bodies. So remind everyone that Chef Keith is starving for their questions, and it's not good to have a starving chef. Thanks for everything you do, Jack. And remember, today is what you make it. So make it a good one. Bye. Well, Ronnie, thanks for sharing that. And I think you give me too much credit for this. This is not about Jack. This is about the Survival Podcast community, the forum, the Zello room, the podcast, the Facebook all of it together, because different people participate in this community through different ways. Some people love Facebook, and they're always on the Facebook page posting things, like yourself. Uh, some people love to post on the blog but don't really like the forum. Some people love the forum and barely even listen to the show. Some people have really gotten jazzed up by the Zello chat room and are on the Zello app uh, all the time talking to each other. That's really blossomed. 
And I think most of the sponsors, if they meet anybody from this audience, they're going to behave the same way Keith did. Very, very happy to meet you uh, because they really do value you guys as well. And I think that's something that we have that I've seen a lot of other people kind of pick up with the podcasting thing, start to bring sponsors in, turn it into a business, whatever. But I don't feel like most people have – I don't feel like – I feel like very few people in any realm – have made the sponsors part of the community and, and done so to the point where I've actually gotten rid of sponsors because they didn't want to be part of the community. I mean, these guys care about you guys. They don't just care about your dollars and your business. I mean, let's face it, they're in business to make a living, and if they don't make a living, they can't you know, do their business anymore, and they can't serve their customers, but they care about you guys. They, they really believe in what they're doing, and they believe they're doing the best that they can. And, and that's why I have them as sponsors. And I think that there's also a bond, not just between like when you meet somebody that's a sponsor show, but when you just meet each other. I mean, I see it. I've done like this expo that's coming up. I've done them before. And all of a sudden, these people get around and they all want to talk to me. But then they like, okay, I've talked to Jack for a little bit and somebody else wants to talk to them. And they start talking to each other. And you see that they just immediately, immediately sync with each other. And I think that's special. And I want you guys to work harder and do more to connect with each other. I see people all the time saying, is there anybody in South Carolina? You bet there are. Or is there anybody in Maine? You bet there is. Get on the forums. Go into the regional boards. You'll find people. Start meetups. Get together. Don't make it about me. Make it about you. Make it about community. Make it about preparedness. Form these relationships, folks. This is what we've lost. This is what I'm trying to bring back. This is what the show this week about why not shopping at Walmart won't do a hill of beans uh, was all about. It's not about where you shop or who you buy for or how bad everybody else is and how bad they suck. It's about that we've lost a sense of belonging, and that's my goal. If I can restore that, then we can get through anything they throw at us. We can get through any disaster that comes our way. We can unite as a people, and it starts with you. So, Ronnie, thank you for being part of that. Thank you for calling in, and thank you for all your contributions to the show. Chef Keith, I know you listen, so thank you for uh, taking time to spend uh, with an audience member and uh, letting them know uh, that, that TSP is, uh, is an important thing to you as well. And thank you to everybody who's ever had that kind of interaction with your fellow listeners. And those of you that are thinking, I don't know about this uh, going public and letting people know who I am, when you let people know who you are from this audience, they're the kind of people you want to meet. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Tommy calling from Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm just calling, and I'm curious. I have a really quick question, actually. I'm kind of curious. If um, something ever happened to where it's like a total collapse, maybe in the future, what do you think would happen with all of the maybe already, I want to say colonized, but like uh, the already like the already built gangs already that's out there? Do you think that they might start running things or... You know, I don't know exactly any like, gangs a lot, but, you know, there's a lot of big, big gangs that are out there. Do you think that they would start having more control over, for example, just the regular citizens or whatever? Do you, or do you think that we would all maybe start coming together? Do you think they would still be their own gang? Or Just curious what your thoughts are on that. And then also, um, random, but have you ever considered getting an Instagram I know it's funny, but um, it'll be really cool to see some some of the stuff you know you your pictures. I, I follow on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel as well. Um, but it'll just be really cool to be able to to see your pictures and stuff. So if you have an Instagram, you can just go on you know you can go on your iPhone and just keep uploading pictures and just stuff like that. 
so all your fans will be able to see, you know, more of your life and, and things like that. Because, you know, I'm a true fan and I really love what you do with the show. All right, Jack? Thank you very much for everything you do. I'm addicted to the show. That's all I do now. <laughs> all right? Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, starting out with the question on gangs, I think it's one of my biggest concerns, folks. I just kind of beat you over the head once again about the power of community, how important it is. Say what you want to about gangbangers. Say what you want to about their, them as a people as far as the drugs that they push, the, the gang warfare that they have, the crimes that they commit, and things like that. And you're probably right. But they do have something that we're sadly missing, and that is a sense of community. They have a hierarchy. They have a mutual respect for each other, and they have loyalty to each other. And if you take dangerous people with a community power behind them, organize, organize them, give them a code to follow, and arm them, then you've got a dangerous thing in a breakdown. And I think they are one of the biggest concerns that I have, and that they would, some of them, you know, especially the ones that are a little bit more sophisticated. I mean, if you start to really delve into gang culture, it's not only scary, it's also very revealing. There's a lot of people that actually are like the gangsters, the ones that are running this stuff that are, you know, they're usually older guys. They're like in their late 20s, 30s, even early 40s. And they look at all these young punks, these 16, 18, 19, 20-year-old kids that are out there shooting people up and shit like that as a bunch of idiots and pawns. And they use them. And they would use them in these breakdown scenarios as well. But they're the ones that would coalesce and adapt to the situation and start to realize that, you know, they could actually kind of operate like paramilitary groups in a real breakdown. Go in and tell people they're there to protect them, but extort them for what they have, victimize them as they see fit. Um, it's just a, a harsh reality. And in a breakdown, People that are most organized are either the most stabilizing or the most dangerous, depending on their intentions. And this is why we have to be prepared. Uh, as not just individuals, but as communities, uh, reestablishing things like militias, uh, reestablishing just basic neighborhood watch, knowing who your neighbors are, uh, being prepared to lock down your community if you have to and say, not here, go somewhere else, bother somebody else. You know, what, what, when I talk about... Can I be in your, your brother's keeper type thing in a breakdown? A lot of people think that I'm talking like pie in the sky, like it can't be done because you get the wrong idea. You think I'm talking about like, you know, taking, looking after your entire state or even your entire county or your entire city. Uh, I'm talking about wherever you are that you're going to stay or if you're going to, your plan is to hole up with, with family members in a real bad situation, wherever you are. The, everything you can see around you and a little bit past it, that's your area of responsibility. That's what you've got to hold together because either you're going to help those people hold together or they're going to turn on you or they're going to turn tail and run and they're going to leave you alone. And when someone comes along that wants to do you harm, I don't care who you think you are, you're not going to be able to stand against it. And when you coalesce a community like that and you make it a hard target, people like these gangs are going to naturally seek soft targets. And they'll start out where they already are comfortable with what they already know in the inner cities. Uh, the motorcycle gangs I, I have a big concern for as long as fuel is still available. I know a lot of people think they're going to be the most dangerous because the motorcycles have longer ranges and all. If the fuel is not available, it's not available. It doesn't matter if you have a motorcycle. It's not available. Uh, I'm sorry. It just They're not going to be like a magical place for the motorcycle gangs, but, but as long as fuel is available, they're mobile and they have their hierarchy and there's large numbers of them and they're armed. Um, all of that is a huge concern. And the bigger the breakdown, 
the bigger that concern is. Um, in a breakdown, in a regional breakdown, those guys are actually smarter than the average thug, and they're more likely to bug out themselves and just leave. But when there's not a lot of places to go to, that's what I think they'll become the biggest problem. Of course, they all, you know, the mutant zombie biker always makes a, an appearance in just about every fan fiction novel of a breakdown. And it's kind of cliche, but there's a reason for it. Um, but I worry more about the inner city gangs and them branching out into the suburban rings to victimize people as things fall apart. Um, you know, you, all, I'm not even going to start naming names because there's just so many of them. It doesn't really matter. But uh, I watch a show occasionally. It's either on science or discovery or so, history or something like that called Gangland where they go deep into the subculture of these individual gangs from things like you know, the Aryan Brotherhood, MS-13, uh, all of the Latin Kings, all of these gangs. And you, you look at a lot of what they do, and you see it as very despicable, but you do end up having some level of admiration for the coalescence and the way the structure and the loyalty that they have to each other. A lot of it's brutal. They'll turn on their own in a heartbeat, but... The more they're pressured, the more they stick together. And there's very few things that are more dangerous than a strong community with a malevolent bent that's armed. And these are, these are, that's one of the big things we'll have to worry about. So you're right. Now on this uh, Instagram thing, um, I'm not sure. It, to me, it's like a way to share my pictures. And I guess I share all my pictures. I'm not sure. I'll have to look into it. If anybody does this, and wants to give me their opinion on it, please do so in today's show notes. Um, I'm just not real familiar with Instagrams, and I looked it up, and I don't know. I mean, that's you know, I know you want to know. I try to be pretty public about what I'm already doing, and I put out a lot of videos and photos and stuff like that all the time, but maybe if it was easier, I'd do more. Uh, but on some levels, I really sometimes don't want to do more. Um, there is some part of, I've had people ask about some specific things lately, and I basically said, bugger off, man. I mean, there's certain things I just want to keep to myself, so I don't know. Uh, you guys that use Instagram, let me know. Uh, I'm on the site. I don't really get it. Um, it looks like something as a marketer I should get. Uh, so let me know your thoughts on it, and uh, we'll get back to you on that one. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. Uh, a few weeks ago, you talked about feeding fruit to your chickens. And I've always heard that if you feed fruit to your chickens, they won't produce eggs. And I was just wondering if you have any comments on that. Thank you. Bye. You can file that one in the myth with a thread of reality attached to it category. Um, plenty of people feed their, their chickens uh, fruit. Uh, some of the best eggs in the world you'll find are chickens that are ranged underneath mulberry trees or ranged with elderberries. Both of those uh, get this deep, dark purple look to the yolks. Uh, the mulberry thing I know about from the California community that does it and the uh, elderberry thing I know about from my grandmother, we used to uh, just turn the chickens loose on, on what was left over the elderberries and uh, those, those yolks just get amazing. So fruit, uh, if you think about it, uh, very, very traditional permaculture method is you have your, you know, your peach trees and your apple trees and stuff like that. And, uh, you range your tr chickens under there and the fruit that, that gets infected with, uh, with fruit flies or other pests falls off the tree. The chickens break the cycle. They also eat the fruit. 
So, I mean, it's just something that's been done forever and probably will be done forever. The shred of truth. Um, if you give a child uh, a couple pieces of candy every day, uh, it won't really harm them in any way, shape, or form. If you feed them candy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and nothing else, it will have a very detrimental effect on their development and their health because it doesn't have many of the things that they need. So if we were to feed chickens a diet of fruit, not feed chickens fruit, but a diet of fruit, so they're not getting bugs, they're not getting worms, they're not scratching, they're not getting some grain and some seed and stuff like that, they're only getting fruit, uh, you'd probably have very poor, if at all, laying hens. They're not going to get any calcium that way. And there's two big things that they need to be good, productive egg layers, and one is calcium and the other is protein. So if they're getting a balanced diet and fruit is part of it, it's great for them. Uh, it's a high-energy uh, thing because there's a lot of sugar in fruit, uh, but they can get too much of it. So it's one of those things that needs to be kind of seasonal and needs to be uh, with some level of moderation. But, you know, if you have a fruit orchard and there's times a year where you have heavy drop and during that period of time they're just tearing the hell out of it. They're doing so much good for you with pest control. Even if they slack off a bit as layers, you're still going to get eggs. Uh, so it's, it's a great thing. A lot of people take to feeding their chickens when it's really hot out chilled fruit. So, you know, especially, uh, you know, people that grow like cantaloupe and watermelon and stuff like that. You just put it in your refrigerator and, you know, once or twice or three times a week when it's really hot, cut a slice of it off and share it with them. They'll go ape shit over that stuff and they really appreciate it. Just like you like a cold piece of watermelon, uh, on a hot summer day. So it's not something to worry about. But if I gave anybody the impression that you could just feed chickens fruit exclusively, that's not what I meant, and that could lead to problems. And feeding anything, anything exclusively can lead to problems. There's plenty of plants out there that have small toxins, amounts of toxins in them, and they can be, you know, a tenth or a third or, or, or a quarter of a diet on an ongoing basis and have no ill effects. But if you feed an animal exclusively that, they get a combination of the deficiency and a buildup of the toxin, and you can kill them with it. So that's like another myth with chickens is don't feed them acorns. There's too many tannins there. They'll die. Well, I guess if you fed chickens high tannin red acorn and nothing else, uh, you could cause them a lot of toxicity due to the tannins. But if they're getting white acorn and red acorn and acorn weevils and bugs and other things, they're only going to mess with acorns so much to begin with. And chicken farmers during the Great Depression went to acorns as a primary chicken feed, uh, crushed white acorn, which is low in tannin, and the chickens generally just like you, will pick the white part out and leave uh, the, the peel, and they're actually better at it than people, and the primary source of the tannins, in, especially in a white acorn, is the outside. So there's a lot of myths around chickens and livestock. And here's the thing to remember. Um, if you're a hunter at all, you've probably never been up in a tree, looked out and saw a deer, deer runs up, starts eating a plant, you're waiting for him to come a little closer so you can draw that bow, eats a little bit more of that plant, he falls over and he dies. Animals have some intrinsic intelligence, and unless you put them in a place where they have no choice and have to eat one thing exclusively, they're going to balance things out fairly well for themselves. Uh, they're better than us at that. And sometimes the more primitive the animal, the more that that's true. You get advanced animals like apes and, and chimps and all, and they will... Uh, act very much like people with their choices with food if they have lots of choices available and eat some of the worst things for them. But most other animals, lower animals, will actually have this instinctive draw that as long as things are seasonal and what would generally be available, they'll make 
fairly good choices for themselves. Good call. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Chris from Rochester, also Dan's Land in the Forum. I wanted to get your thoughts on, I have about $3,000 in an old 401k account, and I'm wondering if I've, an option might be to close that account. It's an E-Trade account. Take that money, buy some silver with it now, and then next April, when I get hit with the taxes, either sell some silver or you know, come up with the money to pay the penalties on that. Just wanted your thoughts on that thought process. Thank you. A uh, couple things here. One, you said 401k. I'm thinking you mean IRA, or otherwise it wouldn't be sitting in an E-Trade account. Uh, maybe it was a 401 you rolled to an IRA inside E-Trade, and that's possible, but you're looking at an IRA right now. Um, assuming it's conventional, you're going to have to pay all uh, taxes and penalties on withdrawal. Three grand, even if you're paying uh, the, uh, the tax rate of about, let's say, 20% effective tax rate. You're looking at about 600 bucks in income taxes on $3,000, and you're going to pay the penalty on withdrawal. Uh, they'll take it straight out. You're going to pay your penalty on withdrawal. So uh, that's going to eat up some money, too. Uh, you're going to pay an early withdrawal penalty of 10%. And as I understand it, if I remember right, you pay the tax first and the withdrawal penalty second. So you're going to look at paying... Um, If you pay your 20% effective tax rate, you're going to pay the $600, bucks, plus you're going to pay another $300. So you're going to pay about $900 of your three grand. That's going to leave you with about $2,100 for early withdrawal. With that being the case, i got to ask you, why the hell you want to do this with only $3,000 to buy silver? If you wanted to do this because you needed the money, I'd say maybe you need to consider it. But you're looking at a pretty big hit. Uh, to get this money out early, and it's not a lot of money. It's only $3,000. And the idea that you'll take it out and then you'll pay the taxes uh, by selling some of the silver that you buy is assuming that you know between now and then that silver will remain the same or go up. Because if it goes down, then you're, you're losing even more. So if you just want to, like, let's say, play the silver market with this $3,000, Over the next year, the easiest thing to do is go into E-Trade and look up SLV. That's the silver uh, ETF fund. And, and buy that inside your IRA. Uh, I hate silver and gold ETFs. I think there's a lot of things that really worry me within silver and gold ETFs uh, long term. But for short-term holding of precious metals inside IRAs and 401ks, I think they're the way to go. Um, so if you're going to do this, if you're going to take the money out, you say, I just want to buy silver with it, and I just that's just what I want to do, I would advise you to take it out, go ahead, take the penalty, have the tax withhold on withdrawal, and you can do that. Whatever you get is whatever you get. Buy your silver, put it in your lockbox or your safe deposit box or your hole in the ground or wherever it is you keep your silver and leave it there. Go ahead and pay it now. Don't try to play that game between now and then. That'll get you hurt. If you don't absolutely need to take the money out, it's only $3,000. It might be a piece to leave inside a 401k. And people say, well, what if they ever start coming after our retirement accounts or whatever? There'll be an alarm going off, a bell and whistle going off. You'll have time to bail. And then again, we're back to the whole point of, in this case, it's only $3,000. 
there was three million dollars and you were going to take it out and effectively retire for the rest of your life with it, and even though it was going to cost you a million dollars to do it, you were going to get two million bucks cash and walk away and set your life up with it. Well, screw it. Go ahead and do it. Um, because it very well may be zero by the time you're 59 and a half and eligible to get your own money without penalty. Um, but with $3,000, the fact that you're going to buy silver with it tells me you don't need it. Uh, I would probably look for other ways to buy my silver. But if I was absolutely gung-ho, I want this money in silver, I would do it only two ways. SLV inside the IRA, and you can buy it and sell it like that. If silver spikes at 38 bucks and you think it's coming back down, you can put in a, a market order and you can sell that sucker before your page reloads, your order's processed. When you sell and, and, and buy and sell physical silver, there's fees and there's losses. It, if you buy silver at $28 as physical metal and sell it at when it's at $28 as physical metal, you lose money. You lose money on both ends of the deal. Physical metal is a long-term hold insurance policy. So if you want to do that, take your medicine, lose the, the, the tax and insurance, and, and, and buy the silver. Or calculate the tax. You know, you can hold it as cash in the bank between now and then and take the spread and buy your physical metal with it. Those are the two ways I would look at doing it. And they're the only two ways that I would look at getting silver out of that money. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Bill in Texas. I had a question that came to mind because of the straw issue and worrying about the poison in it. When I buy composted steer manure, am I, is that something I need to worry about? Thanks. This is a highly controversial and multi-headed, multi-tentacled monster because the answer is yeah and no. Uh, plenty of people will go out and just buy commercial compost, throw stuff in it, and it grows beautiful. And then every once in a while somebody will go out and buy some commercially produced composted, you know, whatever, whether it's uh, holes or manure or whatever, it's, or mushroom compost, whatever it is, they'll go out and they'll buy it. They'll put it in their garden. They'll get very, very poor performance. Sometimes it's the compost, and sometimes it's just a guy can't garden well and blames the compost. It's it's both, but it does happen. I get compost from a city compost facility, and I built this huge long berm, about 60-foot-long hugel berm, uh, with, a, with a water flow in the middle to keep from drying out the lower hill. And uh, I put that in, and I planted it, and it looks beautiful, except for one patch is about 10 feet long. And when you get that type of result, and I carpet bombed it with seed, and everything's kind of lackluster there. Some things are starting to grow, but you can tell that this one bare patch, that particular you know piece of the compost that came from that facility, clearly has some level of residual herbicide in it. So the question about compost and steer manure, if the steer are eating, let's say, alfalfa, <laughs> And that alfalfa is this new Roundup Ready alfalfa, and usually you don't feed steers alfalfa, but I'm just giving you an example. Or they're getting a soy-fed uh, diet and soy's Roundup Ready, or they're they're getting a grass, you know, like hay that's that's been that's hit with atrazine or something like that. And and some of these other uh, herbicides like 2,4-D uh, and some of these uh, more persistent herbicides, when you compost that manure. If their diet was primarily that, there's a high level of residual herbicide that will survive the composting. 
Now, things like atrazine and even 2,4-D have relatively short shelf li- uh, half-lives. Some of these other ones, some of these, these things that they're reverting to now, because they've made those weeds into super weeds, some of these older herbicides they're bringing back, and the names are skipping me. If I had Paul Wheaton here, he'd rattle off three or four real quick. These can have half-lives as long as five to seven years. And usually your key that you're dealing with atrazine or one of these other ones, these other ones I'm talking about, is if you plant corn, it grows. If you plant any kind of a grass-type crop, it grows. And then just about everything else, especially nightshade things like peppers and tomatoes, just don't grow or they grow really poorly. And right next to it in some other soil, they grow really well. You've probably dealing with one of those. And if it's atrazine, uh, you probably will be able to grow anything there that you want to in, in not a long time, maybe one or two seasons. If it's some of these other things, it might be a really long time. So it's a gamble. Now, all of it, all of the toxins that can end up in compost, when it's in small amounts, the composting process will actually lock up the toxins and make them inert. And, and Jeff Lawton has done a lot of work that proves that. Now, Paul Wheaton would tell you, no, you don't. Anything that might have anything that's terrible in the world will explode if you use it. And Jeff will tell you, don't worry about it. And the truth, even though both of these guys are a lot smarter than me on a lot of things, from my practical experience, lies somewhere in between the two. Uh, but the Wheaton approach keep you safe. If you never use anything, unless you know it's sourced and you know it's free of all toxins, you'll you'll do better. But it'll cost you more and it'll be harder to find. And we also then have to ask ourselves this question with these major composting facilities like the city facilities that are springing up. If we don't use the waste to build something like that out of it, what do we do with the waste? And this is where you go back to the source of the problem. The source of the problem are these chemical companies that are, uh, you know, getting this used so frequently, not just in, you know, the major farms, but in the backyards. And uh, it's something to be concerned about. You know, trees take up small amounts of it out of the soil, but it's not enough to kill the tree, but it ends up in the leaves, and then it can become concentrated in certain areas. The way to test it, though, the best way to test it is to use some of it to grow some legumes, uh, grow some kind of a bean, and put beans in real pot, you know, normal from the store potting soil, and some with mixed with the compost in two different containers, and grow them. And if the beans grow beautifully, you know, two feet away in the potting soil, and they don't grow at all, or they look sick or yellow or bad in the compost, then that tells you there's a higher cotton. The legume is the most susceptible to this problem but it's not an easy answer it's not an easy answer because there's a lot of really great material available for low cost or free and even the stuff that has problems can be rehabilitated over time but it can slow you down so if you're doing four or five garden beds it really behooves you to try to go out and get the best stuff you can if you start using a lot larger area then you know it, it, it's try to do the best you can make selections test the material except that once in a while you might get some bad stuff and when you do plant the hell out of it with what will grow there and then take that stuff off And don't compost it back into your system. Use it as a remediation. Uh, and oyster mushroom, by the way, is a great remediation uh, 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 tool uh, for soil that has certain contaminants in it as well. So it's a concern, but I don't live my life afraid of it either. Uh, let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Greg in Columbia, Missouri. And a while back you had a question about using an IBC tote for storing gasoline. 
I had done that uh, before that came up and uh, had about a third full, and I wanted to say it worked okay, but the valve froze up when I tried to open it and stuck in an open position. Unfortunately, I had a cap to cover it, but I would caution people not to rely on that uh, valve, and they should have a, a way to get it out of the tank and or to keep it from coming out of the tank if that valve should fail. I don't think it's suitable for gasoline, but the rest of the tank is. So I would share that and give a fair warning. Thanks. Bye. Well, that'll probably save somebody out there some grief that plan to do this, and somebody out there is probably going, dang it, I did it already, and now i got to worry about this. So i got a solution. Let's say you did it already, and you got the valve closed right now, and you can't open the valve, and you're worried that it might get stuck open like this guy's, and you got gas going everywhere. Um, here's what you could do to, to, uh, to, to work this out pretty quick. Plumb onto the existing valve another valve that's your main open and close valve that is designed to deal with something like gasoline. Go ahead and open your valve, um, the, your existing valve, and leave it be. And now you just have a better valve. It's probably not going to be the case that that valve is going to deteriorate and start leaking. Um, that would be if you already had it full. I think the smartest thing to do based on this gentleman's uh, experience is before you fill it, Uh, go ahead and uh, replace the valve with a valve designed to deal with uh, you know chemicals like gasoline because if you think about it, it makes perfect sense that they wouldn't use uh, let's say an industrial solvent quality valve for something that's designed primarily to hold foodstuffs like an international beverage container. So hey, thanks for that call and that's kind of a a call out to anybody, when you hear a caller call in and ask a question and we answer it and you have something to add, those are great follow-up calls. Uh, it shows the community, again, helping each other out. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Rebecca from Alabama. I just listened to the call-in show from June 8th, and I wanted to tell you in the audience about a method you can use to keep bare root trees alive when you can't plant them right away. I've used this method hundreds of times, so I know it works pretty well. We've got a stack of five-gallon buckets in our garage, the kind that come from Home Depot, with several holes punched in the bottom. Whenever we get a shipment of trees or shrubs in, we pull out the buckets, put a good layer of topsoil in them, then unwrap, separate the trees, put them in the buckets, and add more topsoil up to the planting mark on the tree. We can usually fit two to three trees in a bucket, depending on their size. The technical term for this is healing in. Once the trees are healed in, we water them thoroughly and put them in a shady spot until we can plant them. This method will keep the trees alive up until the time they break bud in the spring. There are a few precautions you need to take if you're going to do this. One, don't let the root balls touch the sides or bottom of the bucket, and the plastic acts as a thermal bridge. Two, water them frequently. Three, don't let them get exposed to frost. If it's going to freeze, move the buckets to a protected place like a basement or a garage. Don't bring them into your house because the temperature shock will kill them. I'm a self-taught gardener and orchardist, but I've been planting trees since I was eight years old. And like I said, I've used this method hundreds of times, and my only losses have been my own fault. I hope this helps someone. Thanks for the show. Well, thanks a lot. That would help me when all of my dadgone trees came in and I broke my neck to get them all in the ground in just a few days. That would have uh, allowed me a little more time. So I appreciate that call, and it probably will help a lot of people. And uh, It's one of those things I'm learning about as I go, you know, and dealing with bare root trees. So I appreciate the call. I don't have much to add to that one. That is just a stellar call. Thank you for it. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Ray uh, from North Carolina. 
just want to say I do love your show. Uh, it's been a breath of fresh air to stumble onto. Um, really appreciate the way uh, you're, you're realistic, but um, very much so talking uh, people away from the cliff uh, if they're if they're in that area, so to speak. So really uh, appreciate the way you do that. Do go about your uh, your show. Um, been uh, thinking about the economic uh, system collapsing around us. Uh, it was a show you did the other day. And I've uh, been on the same page now for a little while. Uh, my wife and I have been thinking about uh, which way to go. We've come to a fork in the road. We owe about uh, 300k on our current mortgage. Um, we have about $80,000 in, in uh, cash we can get to. Um, what we're thinking is we can either buy some land and build another house uh, and try to get out from this one with a smaller house and get out of debt that way or try and uh, pay this one down before the uh, system uh, comes uh, to too much of a, of a streaking halt. Um, I'm not sure when that would be, like you say, but um, just wondering what you would do uh, if you were in my shoes, uh, have a good, stable job, uh, make decent money, and um, thank you for all you do. And uh, That's a very difficult one because only you can really answer this. This is what I would tell you. Um, as many people know, I'm looking for a, a, a house and some land, five acres minimum, ten acres better. Anything beyond that is wonderful. And uh, like I said, walking a lot of property in the past couple weeks, I have gotten a new appreciation for when land is well laid out and relatively flat and open and you can work with it, how big five acres really is. It's it's a much bigger property than I feel like I have uh with my bug out location in Arkansas because even though it's the same acreage it's totally different when it's when it's laid out certain ways and workable. Um but the reason I'm accelerating, I talked about doing this in the spring, and now I'm tr trying to do it right away. And by the way, those of you who have been wondering about the offer that we put in, um, our offer was not accepted. And for one of those reasons where it's it's not like you can go back and make another offer, and you're just going, why did you do this in the first place? And that is the people uh, that were selling the house. Uh, had been trying to sell it for several months, and when they got a solid offer from people that were serious and wanted to buy it, and, and and basically we were waiting and waiting and not hearing back, and you'd think, well, you know, we're like ten under the the asking price, and when you're ten thousand under the asking price, usually people come back and say, well, you know, meet you halfway, or you know, if you say one seventy, they come back and say one seventy seven five. We're just not hearing back, and I'm like, this is bad news. You know, my wife's like, eh, like, no, 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 this is not, something's wrong with these people. And what it, what it came down to is when they were faced with the reality that they were selling their house, they really realized they didn't want to leave. And I wanted to buy it, so I understand why they wouldn't want to leave. I think it was an older couple that just started to decide it was too much work or whatever, and they were going to go get a smaller place, and they decided to stay. Um, but I'm accelerating my timeline, not because I'm worried about a complete collapse, but I'm worried about lending becoming a lot more tight and seizing up. So I feel that it's if, if you really want to do it, like there's no time like now. Building the house and then selling scares me a little bit for you. Um, there's a lot of expenses with selling a house, staging it, making sure it's better, you got to make a decision whether or not this is what you want to do. I will tell you that sitting on a $300,000 mortgage for anybody anywhere in the country right now makes me very, very apprehensive. Very apprehensive. 
If you love the place and you can start paying the mortgage down much more rapidly, that's one thing. But I'm getting the feeling you don't love the place. Um, if you have good income, you have good cash reserves, there's no reason you can't ride out even a long-term downtrend and keep the house. Um, but I'm getting a feeling this is not just for, for cost savings. If it's just for cost savings, seriously analyze your motivations because maybe you can compensate for this. Uh, And then my other question is, can you sell the house? What is the reasonable prognosis for this house to be sold and sold above water? Uh, maybe you can sell it fast, but you're going to lose $20,000 on it. Is this the time to take that bath or not? Only you can determine that. What I have to say to anybody in your scenario is the same way that we are making our decisions. What can you reasonably afford? What, you can, what can you create a lot of resiliency around, and what do you really want? And I think that when it comes to where you live... Those have to be your driving motivators. It's not just, well, we'll get a smaller place because it'll cost less money. That is one piece of the trifecta there. And, and sometimes it's a big enough piece that you have to do it. But if you're going to lose a lot of money to get out from under this house, you have to seriously consider whether that's going to really work for you or not. I mean, one thing we have to look at is if you built this house or bought this house quite a while ago, your interest rates are higher, you have a good amount of money and job security, and you can get loans easily, and we don't wipe out the 80, but we take 60 of the 80, pay down the $300,000 house to $240,000, refinance that sucker at 3.75% interest rate now, assuming you can do that, What does that do to your house payment? How much more now can you pour on to paying down the remainder of the mortgage if you love the house and you love where you're at? If you're sitting in the middle of some place that's going to be suburban hellhole ground zero when this economy collapses and you've decided you don't want to try to you know, make that house a fortress in that scenario and you want to get further out, there probably won't be any time soon a better time to get it done. But the exact mechanics are something you're going to have to work out for yourself. It would be a good idea to do a market analysis and see what this house is going to reasonably sell for and reasonably sell for fast. Not just comparables and what sold. What comparables sold in 60 days or less? What comparables sold in 30 days or less in your area? Your area has a lot to do with this. If you're in Tennessee, it's going to be a lot different than California. Um, so these are a lot of unknowns I don't have for you, but that's my thought process around this. But what I would encourage anybody to do is if you really know what you want, get yourself on the path to getting there. And if, we're, if you are where you don't want to be, get on a path to get off of that, it was especially with home and land ownership. It's, it's again, there's a, there's a chance for some kind of rebound in the economy and some kind of restart of the band for one more big time before the toilet flushes, there's a chance for that. But the odds are that even that is going to come with an increase in interest rates. It has to. They can't go lower than they are. So when it comes to the cost of, 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 of credit access for the purchase of real property, it's probably not going to get any better than it is now. And even if prices continue to slide of real property, if you can't get the mortgage, even though the land's a better deal than ever and the rates are low, that doesn't really help you either. So I'd get on the path if I were in anybody's shoes right now and I were already somewhere I didn't want to be. I uh, hope that makes sense. Let's take another one. Jack, it's uh, Dan calling from Australia. Been uh, loving your show since the car, and um, since you were in the car, I mean, and uh, loving the new format over there. It's uh, 
five minutes with Jack. I just uh, wanted to call, I don't know if you just would have popped up on your radar, but I was watching the news last night, and uh, primetime news, and it said that our treasurer is going to Hong Kong next week to try and uh, push for us to do our exchange with China um, between our own two currencies, the Australian dollar and the Chinese one, I think it's called, and no longer through the US dollar. Now, this is definitely going to happen because no one puts an announcement on primetime news unless they know the outcome. For fear if uh, the other party says no, they'll look like a dick. So this is definitely obviously going to happen. Uh, they're selling it to us or saying to us that obviously our imported goods are going to be, you know, Chinese consumer crap. It's going to be cheaper because we don't have to exchange a currency anymore. Uh, but clearly we don't have the clout, uh, the boldness or anything to, to come up with this deal. So I'm suggesting clearly this is uh, the Chinese saying this to us. And then uh, it looks like our idea to try and get it through. Because we sell a hell of a lot of uh, minerals over there. Lots and lots and lots. So I know you've talked about um, the world divesting from the U.S. dollar and hopefully not wanting to trade with U.S. dollar. And you spoke about oil um, trades in other countries trying to get away from U.S. dollar. Well, it looks like it's definitely happening here with us. So uh, I'll say you're on the money. Interested in what you think, but I'm sure it's the Chinese doing it uh, and not us. So anyway, love the show, man. Keep it up. I always love hearing from some of our international audience. Uh, we actually have a really big, we don't hear from a lot of times on the call-ins or whatever, but we hear from a lot of people by email that are in Australia and New Zealand. And I guess because it's one of the other large English-speaking countries in the world, but uh, we seem to have a real Aussie contingent over there. And uh, Dean, I, I thank you for being part of it. Uh, your your observation is, is is spot on, and it's something that I'm telling you, The dumbasses running this country are not paying attention to. This idea that you can go bomb every country that deals in oil with different currencies is going out the window when you start having allies like Australia and uh, military powers like China engage in similar things for similar situations. Dean keyed in on it, okay? The Chinese buy a tremendous amount of minerals from Australia. In fact, a huge portion, I mean a massive portion of the Australian GDP is currently dependent on the exportation of minerals to China, rare earth minerals and many other uh, minerals and, and, and things like that. So it's a big deal. What China is saying is, look, we'll take Australian dollars. Why should we be, you know... Why, why should you have to convert it to U.S. dollars and then we have to convert it to our currency? Why can't we do... And you got to ask yourself a question. Why is it that the United States has this monopoly in the first place? How is it that we've managed to do this and do we have a right to do it? Do, does the United States have a fundamental right in some way to say to Japan, you will use dollars when you trade with India? And India, you'll, I mean, more and more countries are snapping to this. And, you know, what Chris Dwayne calls the anti-hegemon, which is, you know, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, that kind of, uh, that, that kind of alliance in the, you know, the, the, uh, what is it, the Shanghai Club or whatever, are, are starting to realize, like, there's no reason for them to do this. And they're going to start doing a lot more than just this. What Russia is doing right now is making an agreement with China not just to sell them oil and use their two currencies in exchange absent the dollar which you know basically says big giant middle finger to the middle finger to the petrol dollar 
And, and what is the U.S. going to do? Go to war with Russia and China? That would be stupid now, wouldn't it? That'd be a great way to radiate the entire planet. And don't pick a fight with a country with 1.7 billion freaking people either. That's kind of dumb because they can lose half their population and still have more people than you. You got to think about. You got to think. All this old Cold War shit is out the window today. Hopefully, we're in a more enlightened society. It's bigger than just what's going on here, though. It, Russia is is kind of kicking around the idea of saying to China, not only will we sell you oil with a direct currency exchange, we, we'll sell it to you cheaper than we than the global price. Think about that. We'll give you a buying advantage. We'll sell to you for less than we sell to the Western world for, less than we sell to Europe for, less than we sell to South America for. What's, why? Well, because we'll just put a pipe that goes from Russia to China. It'll be direct delivered. We, why wouldn't, wouldn't we sell it to you for less? And by the way, if you want to be good neighbors and buy from us, and we, I can sell to anybody for any price I want. Well, the global cartel doesn't like that. Well, tough shit, right? What's, what's Iran going to do? Go to war with China? They're one of the few people. Iran going to go to war with Russia? They're one of the few countries that have their back. The whole damn thing's decoupling. The whole damn thing's decoupling. This monopoly that the U.S. has run with the dollar based standard is coming to an end. The entire economic paradigm is coming to an end. This is why I've had a bigger search of sense of urgency. Three cities in California done went bankrupt in a week. San Bernardino next, right? Stockton just I mean they're just I mean everything I've told you is going to occur is starting to occur. Decoupling from the dollar. They don't need us anymore. They've been playing chess while we play checkers, and we're not even good at checkers. So what we're seeing here also is this precedent thing. I was, you know, it's, it's so coincidental that Dean called this in this week. This morning, I sat and listened on Russia Today, and I don't remember who the guy was, some Russian guy. They were asking him about this very stuff. And he was pointing to Australia as an example, not with the direct currency exchange, but they were saying that, well, isn't Russia basically giving China an oil advantage by doing this, by making them their preferred exportation partner? And he said, no one complained for years and years and years when the most of the oil we exported went to America. But now it's a problem because we're talking about doing the same type of thing with the Chinese? And he said, by the way, do you know how much minerals that Australia and the uh, New Zealand and, and the, the Pacific nations sell into China? No one complains about them making China a preferred partner for trading with this stuff. We all basically have a right to do business with each other however we see fit. And that is a middle finger to America. Not to you and me, but to the, the oligarchy that's tried to demand that we apply American dominance to global commerce and has successfully done it for about a hundred years. You can only do that to the rest of the world for so long before they catch up with you and, and again, give you the middle finger. And about the only people that have done it other than us that have had a lot of uh, control is going to be the Europeans in the Eurozone. And that's not exactly working real well either, is it? The rest of the world has basically turned to Europe and America and said, you guys have ramrodded this currency system down our throats. This isn't anything anti-American or anti-European, folks. This isn't about our ability to innovate, our work ethic, whatever. This is about the, 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 the 
the, the traders in charge of the economy and what they've done to the value of the dollar and then forced everybody else to use it. And they're just, you know, for the last 10 years, and I told you they were in the middle of this when I started doing this show four years ago, that they couldn't afford to cut the strings then. When we were going down, they had to play ball with us. They had to help save the U.S. economy. They had to be part of the trillions in dollars in bailout. They Everybody was in the same boat. But they were building lifeboats and getting into them so that the next time that a crash came, they could just cut the tether and say, sorry, sorry. Well, here it is. Here's the whole thing playing out. More and more countries, including countries that are friendly allies. You can't find a better ally than Australia. But Australia is saying, look, guys, it's not, it's not personal. It's business. They want to buy shit from us. We want to sell shit from them, uh, shell shit to them. We want to buy from them, and they want to sell to us. Why the hell do we have to use your money to do this? Because you say so? I, you know, your money's tanking. We don't think so. We're not going to do that. We'll do direct business. And it's going to happen more and more and more. This is a fundamental new reality. Dean, thanks for calling in and confirming that for us, even though it's not exactly great news. And, folks, I'm telling you, pay attention. This economic shift is accelerating. It's coming faster. It won't look like the TV tells you good or bad. It's going to be a, a time of great shift and great change, and you've got to be leveraged into hard assets, and you've got to be prepared for it. Let's take one more, and we wrap up for the day. Hi, Jack. This is Ryan from Missouri. I was calling to see what your take was on the U.N. arms treaty that's going on in New York City and how that's going to affect the American gun owner. Uh, it's just kind of strange to me that the Obama supports that and he's going to sign off on that, completely squishing the Second Amendment rights. If you would, please answer that question. Thanks. I'm tired of it. I've been listening to this crap for four years, man. I'm, I'm telling you, this isn't a good thing. This isn't a wonderful thing. This isn't something we should all turn our backs on. But this is not the damn crap that Alex Jones is telling you it is. And stop believing it. This damn thing has been used for over four years by second-tier gun rights groups to fundraise by scaring the shit out of you with something that just ain't so. Let me explain something to you about a treaty. Okay, I want you to get this. Because this is, I am tired of this. Okay, Obama and Hillary are not going to sign a treaty and ban your guns. They can't do it. It doesn't work that way. And if they could, they probably would have done it a long damn time ago. A treaty in the United States, and I don't want to hear your shit about, they trample on the Constitution all the time. Look at Obamacare. I know. There's certain things in the constitutional argument, though, that are absolutely gray area issues that can be fought and argued about and living document this and bullshit that. And you and I go, common sense dictates and common sense doesn't rule in a court of law. There are other things in the Constitution that are cut and dry, precedented, black and white things. One of them, thank God, is a treaty. A treaty in the United States of America cannot be entered into and not be executed and be enforced by the president unless it is first given approval by two-thirds of the Senate. And in case you can't divide... Um, You know, 100 by 3 and multiply it by 2, that's 66 votes in the Senate. It takes 66 senators to make a treaty valid. Another absolute, concrete, constitutional fact that nobody has ever said at any point 
is not valid is that no treaty can supersede the United States Constitution. If you want to take guns and gun ownership rights away from Americans, there is only one way, especially after Heller versus D.C., there is only one way to do that, and that is a constitutional amendment. This is not a gun ban. This will not make the Chinese know how many guns you have. That is all bullshit. The actual treaty itself, while I'm not in favor of it, of it basically requires the other nations to do what the United States is already doing when it comes to the exportation of firearms to other nations. That's what this is. And no, it won't prevent you from buying your Belgian-made browning. It just won't. Even if you want a brand new one they just made there yesterday, you'll still be able to do that. I don't think they make browning in Belgium anymore. Maybe that was a bad example. Uh, but you will still be able to buy your Italian-made shotguns, your Turkish-made shotguns, your Russian-made shotguns. It's not about you and your gun ownership. It never is. It never was. Now, could it be tied eventually to some longer-term plan to try to put more force onto the American people to give up their guns. Sure it could. But you have much bigger things you can worry about when it comes to the Second Amendment than a dadgone treaty that this Senate is never going to ratify. And stop buying into the hype and stop getting scared. I guess Alex came out with this or something. I got like four billion freaking people. They're going to take our guns. They're going to take our No, they're not. No, they're not. It's not how it works. Let me give it to you one more time just so you can get it. This is cut and dry, black and white, not subject to debate. Two-thirds of the Senate to ratify a treaty, and no international treaty can supersede the United States Constitution in regard to U.S. citizens on U.S. soil. That is in the document verbatim. No one has ever even questioned what it means at a time where we try to bend everything because it's so concrete, so direct, and so freaking patently obvious that there's no reason for anybody to try to do it. And I know I'm going to hear, oh, Jack, oh, Jack, you know they always do it a little at a time. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. But do you know what this is? This is get Mitt Romney elected. That's what this is. That's what this is. This is get Mitt Romney elected. This is increased revenue to the NRA and all the other gun rights groups. And, 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 and this is sell more ammo and sell more guns. And if you want to fall for it, go ahead. I'll just put it to you this way. I'll give up my cold, my gun when they pry my cold, dead fingers around from around it. Treaty or no treaty, the end, done. And this is, there are many other ways that they're trying to suppress your right to keep and bear arms than this that are far more insidious, like ammo taxation. Those are the things, while you're paying attention to this, that ain't going to do a damn thing, they'll sneak one in on you and they'll do some real damage to your ability to keep and bear arms. Your local governments, your state governments in some states and some municipalities are far bigger enemies to the Second Amendment than this Chicago, New York, okay, Los Angeles. They're far more, uh, far more undermining of the Constitution than a U.N. small arms treaty. Again, the U.N. small arms treaty must be ratified or actually not ratified, it is the president that ratifies the treaty through its signature and execution, but it has to be approved by two-thirds of the Senate. Now, do I think you should call your senator and go, there's no problem with this, go ahead and vote for it, it's okay with us? No. I think you should call your senator and tell him this is a bunch of bullshit, let people sort out their own things, we don't need to be entering in a no treaty like this that has to do with small arms. 
That's that's individual commerce, and if, if if you know different countries want to run their laws different ways, we don't need to have anything to do with this whatsoever. But you know this this crap, this hype, this shit I keep seeing. It's a backdoor way. They won't even. They'll just sign it, and your guns will be banned tomorrow. Don't be dumb. Don't fall for this crap. And I want to just finish up with one more thing. I get emails every day, every day. Obama did this, Bush did that, so-and-so did this, so-and-so said that, and 99 times out of 100, they don't check out, they don't vet out. And 99 times out of 100, it takes me five seconds to find out they don't vet out. I got one today. Obama uh, was trying to get veterans to pay for their own health insurance after they get out of the military, even if they were injured in combat. And that part was part of the original Obamacare bill. It never went through. It was something they floated to see how it would work. It was supposed to be a cost-saving measure that would have cost everybody more money anyway, but that part was true. But then it was like this, you know, and he said, you know, no one asked these guys to do this. Now they're hurt. They want to be taken. It was like just, it was like something that no politician would ever say, even if he believed it. It was so ridiculous. So, of course, I look it up, and, you know, it turns out it's completely fallacious. It turned out some commentator wrote like a satirical, like, this is basically what he's saying. And somebody took that satire and attributed actually to the president. This is dumb. And you got to stop falling for it, folks. You really do. Uh, because if you continue to fall for stuff like this, you become susceptible to the real threats. And that's what I don't want. So focus on the real threats, not the hype, not the circumstances, certainly not the things that are designed to get one person elected over another person for scare tactics. That's all that this is. And remember, the NRA, the ones that said, we're all in on Mitt Romney. And if I started going on with his anti-gun quotes before he was the current presidential candidate for the Republican Party, it would blow your mind how many horrible things the man said about your right to keep and bear arms. But, uh, yeah, they're all looking out for us, including the NRA, right? I don't buy it anymore. I'm sorry. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares.